Welcome back to Kafaru Cast, everyone. Uh, I'm on the mic solo. Frank is actually doing real live work, and uh, I have an extremely special guest on today. Uh, been talking with with him for about an hour before we turn the turn the mics on, but it's uh, Clay Hotmacher. Is I'm pronouncing that correctly? Hotmacher, you're close. Ah, it's been worse than that. Believe yeah. me. <laughs> so, uh, Clay, you were a two star general. I was. Yeah. Um, you worked uh, in, well, you know what, before we get into any of that, I want to make sure and hit the good stuff for it first. Tell a little bit about yourself, but but tell everybody what you're currently uh, working on, because that, that was one of the main things I wanted to get across to everyone and kind of get the word out. Okay, be happy to. Uh, and uh, hey, thanks for having me on. We actually, I think, used up all my good war stories, just uh, <laughs> BSing before uh, we went live here. But uh yeah, so I spent over 40 years in the military. I started out as a uh, high school uh, dropout, uh, living in a foster home, joined the Marine Corps, did six and a half years, uh, got picked up and went into the Army, and spent the rest of my career as a special ops aviator uh, in the 160th and retired as a two-star general uh, in 2018 uh, after serving a tour as the J3 or the Director of Operations for U.S. Special Ops Command down in Tampa. When I retired, a nonprofit wasn't on my radar, but uh, Vice Admiral Joe McGuire had taken a position uh, with the Trump administration. He had, he had been the previous CEO of the Special Ops Warrior Foundation, and I was asked if I would be interested in applying for the job. So I did, and uh, I took over uh, September 1st of 2018, so I'm closing in on uh, you know two and a half, going on three years here at the Special Ops Warrior Foundation, and that's what I'm doing now. I'm the CEO and the president of the foundation. We're based at Tampa, uh, and next month will be our 41st anniversary. It's interesting as the foundation was stood up in the aftermath of the failed Iranian hostage rescue attempt in 1980. Eagle Claw? Eagle Claw, yeah. exactly right. You know your history. Not many people know that. <laughs> I so, know it was a shit show. I do know that. It was. It was. Desert well, you, One. The reason you are who you are is because of that shit show. Exactly. Uh, which we'll go into that later. But yeah, that's <laughs> a that's a really good thing to talk about. It's, yeah. like, it's like from the ashes of the Phoenix, right? Yeah. Uh, that SOCOM is the most capable special ops command on the planet anyway i digress so you know when that it, when that mission was aborted at the at the desert refueling site referred to as desert one a uh an, a ch-53 or uh helicopter was repositioning to get gas from a parked c-130 and in the dust cloud they ran into each other well more accurately the helicopter drifted into the parked 130 mm -hmm. killed eight yep uh three Marines and five airmen. Those eight left behind 17 kids. So the survivors of that mission made a commitment then and there. I don't even think they had redeployed yet mm -hmm. and said, we're going to take care of those 17 kids. So the foundation was, you know, a humble effort at the time, but uh, it's very sincere to take care of those 17 kids and the mission has continued. So today we have 992 children in our foundation that we are committed to paying for. The youngest is just over a year old. It's uh, the son of Dustin Gabrielard, a special forces uh, NCO from third group that was killed in August of 19. His son was born three months later in January of 20. 
and he's our youngest. And our education counselors uh, told me the other day that he is class of 2042 or 2043 for college. So our pro- we really have two major efforts. Mm-hmm. One is we provide immediate financial assistance to severely wounded, ill, or injured special ops personnel, not just operators, but anybody who's in the command. So if they're in severe is defined as hospitalization, right? You know, so inpatient hospitalization. So we overnight them up to a 5k check. Uh, it depends on what community, but some of them like the Navy SEAL foundation sends them money. So we don't send, you know, that same amount. And it depends. The green berets do uh, foundation supports them as well, but we send that overnight, that check to them. And we also provide them an echo show, which is sort of an Alexa type of thing with a video device, video capability, so they can communicate with their loved ones while they're in the hospital. So it's just money to put the dogs in a kennel, fly their mom in to take care of the kids so they can be with their loved ones. So that's, that's one of the things we do, not our main effort, but our main effort is educating the children of fallen special ops personnel and the children of all living and deceased Medal of Honor recipients. And that support, that education is not, people think, well, it's college scholarships. Well, that's certainly a big part of it, but it's not all of it, not even close. So we take a more holistic view. So we pay for preschool. And we have found that preschool gives these kids a real leg up um, for post-secondary education. So we pay up to 8K per year per child for preschool. We pay unlimited tutoring from basically preschool all the way through college graduation. That includes SAT, ACT prep, whatever they need tutoring for, uh, we pay for it. And again, unlimited. Mm -hmm. We pay for all their college visits. We bring our, we bring about 25 to 30 of our high school kids to Tampa every year for a college prep conference, which is we help them write essays. We teach them financial management, study skills, time management. They actually live in the dorms of the University of Tampa. And here's the cool thing about that week. The mentors for those kids are graduates from our programs that our children have fallen themselves that have volunteered to give back. Comes full circle, then. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It is. And, you know, you think about it. They have a perspective that I don't have and you don't have, right? So right. they don't, I don't, I can't fully understand what these uh, kids are going through when they lose a parent like that. Yeah. So that's a really cool part. And then we pay for, we pay for their, uh, again, I said their college visits, but we pay for their education. So if they decide to go to a, to a, to a technical school, right, to become an electrician or a plumber or a welder or a chef or a hairstylist, uh, we pay for that. If they get into an Ivy League school, we pay for that. We don't ask them to go to any other charities. Mm-hmm. We have mentorship programs for these kids starting in eighth grade that continue through college, and they help them land internships. And we fund internships uh, because uh, we believe that internships ultimately result, not ultimately, but most of the time, result in a, in a job, mm-hmm. right? We pay for study abroad, and we also have a special needs program. We have about 30 of our kids that have varying degrees of challenges, 
And so we have a unique program that is tailored individually for each of these kids. So how, um, obviously, with you being on here, uh, two, two major things before we get too far ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm assuming donations and contributions is where a lot of this money comes from. Where right. can they uh, dig deeper? Where can they find this? Where, th- where can they donate? Things of that nature. Yeah, I would say just check us out. So our website is specialops, O-P-S, specialops.org. All of our financial documents are in there. You know, we just received our 15th four-star rating from Charity Navigator. Your so, open book. is basically Yeah, everything. Everything is on there, testimonials. Uh, the last plug I would say is last year we had 41 kids graduate high school. Mm-hmm. 38 went, to a, uh, went right to college. Two joined the military and one took a year off. That's about 30% above the national average. Yeah, i say that's pretty damn good. And we had 93% of our kids last year graduate college on time, which is exceptionally high and, and far above the national average. That's impressive in and of itself, but it's really impressive when you think about what these kids have been through, right? The traumatic loss of a parent. They're most likely, not always, but most likely in a single-parent home. Yeah. And for them to achieve this kind of success... And I don't take any credit for it. It's for those edu- it's really goes to those education counselors that establish that relationship uh, starting, you know, whenever they join the foundation. And the average age right now of a kid joining our foundation is seven. And that relationship stays with them. I mean, our core values are integrity, compassion, stewardship, and commitment. And though they... Uh, and they really exemplify that and how they treat these families. I mean, it is a very, very close and personal relationship we have with these families. Oh, that's, that's amazing. And, uh, just talking with you before we got kicked off here, it's, it's amazing what you guys are, you're, are, are doing and, and helping obviously in the community. So, uh, you know, before we, we, we move on and start shooting the shit and talking about leadership and war stories, make sure everybody hop on there. Uh, it's uh, specialops.org. Again, having a lot of friends in tier one groups and, and knowing what they go through, uh, the very least you can do is donate it. If you're watching some jack wagon play football and, and, and buying T-shirts for the NFL and NBA, uh, the true actual athletes that, that deserve <laughs> that money are, are in uh, the military tier one group, special ops, things like that. So please hop on and, and, and donate to that. Um, I, I had, had heard uh, of this organization. I didn't realize in, at what depth, what you guys had have do or, or have done. It, it's pretty amazing. And I, I did not know that that started at operation Eagle claw when the, yeah. you know, and that, shit show we'll go into here in a minute yeah but, um uh yeah pretty pretty amazing but is there uh you, you guys have facebook and instagram and everything else yeah we're well, on right? facebook uh instagram twitter uh and linkedin gotcha okay well well cool what well, i i would say um for anybody again listening in please hop on there donate um and uh you know maybe something that um, we have friends that we work with in, in tier one groups for fundraisers as well. Mm-hmm. This may be something we can do an annual uh, kind of a donation type of a giveaway event for you guys, obviously, to, uh, to help out on our end. Um, well, that's the least, least we can do. So um, so as far as uh, 40 years uh, in the military, for people not – if you're in the military, people grasp that the moment you said that a two-star general that started out in the Marines and a high school dropout and you ended up a two-star general – 
the fact that just the two-star general alone, um, there's only four, there's, you know, uh, what do they say? Be my little general. So the brigadier, major general, lieutenant, and then a general general, I guess is how you look at it. How many two-star generals are there walking around right now? Uh, well, so at the army, I would say, I think there's somewhere around 300 or 400 generals total. Mm-hmm. About half of those are uh, one stars, mm-hmm. and about half the one stars in the army. It's different, and you know, it's it, yeah. that varies in the other services. Make two star. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd say there's somewhere like hundred or less, maybe. And how many people are in the U.S. Army at one time, roughly? Ooh, so if you look at the total force. <laughs> Yeah, now you're asking me math questions. I should have my wife on here. She's that's like a, that's a lot. That is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're, you know, I, I know the military's, we're, you know, we're, we're not what we were, a shell of what we were back in the Cold War, appropriately yeah. so, I guess. But I, I'd say half a million. I, I can't give you a firm number. I've been out for almost three years now, so I used to have all that stuff in my head. Uh, but but it's a, I, I think the chances of making – general officer for a regular officer are far below one percent yeah and i just from from me and i've been out for a long long time but you just don't meet that many generals it just doesn't happen you you meet a buddy who says his uncle's a general you meet you know but actually meeting someone who is an actual general doesn't doesn't happen very often especially with your your, your history and your background um you, you know because you joined when what so i joined i actually i joined on the delayed entry program, if you remember that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So in December of 77. That's when I was born, tell you how long ago you joined. I'm, I'm glad you <laughs> shared that. I mean, it, it makes me feel incredibly young, so thank you. Uh, and in fact, you know, uh, so then I, I went active duty. I shipped out to uh, MCRD San Diego. Because you joined at 17. 17. Yeah, I had to have my that, mom. I was, I was a high school dropout. I, I did the same thing. You got to have your parents sign, sign a waiver. Yep. yep. And I just knew, you know, I was living in a foster home. Uh, my parents had been divorced years prior. They're both past now. And uh, and I just knew, hey, I needed a kick in the ass, and I might as well jump in the deep end of the pool <laughs> and uh, go in the Marines. And uh, it wasn't quite the loving reception I expected when I got down there. Hey, welcome to the team, buddy. Yeah. You know, well, they could f- beat the shit out of you back oh, then. Oh, my God, back yeah. then they did, yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget. So, the you know, we fly out of Seattle. I was living up in Washington at the time. We land in San Diego, and this uh, African-American gunnery sergeant was proud. We, you know, we get off the plane. We lost his last year's Easter egg, you know, so we don't know where the hell we're doing. <laughs> but we all carry these, like, manila folders that have your, like, basic yeah, your documents yeah. in there. Yeah, and that's what they look for. And this gunnery sergeant, you know, came up to us, and he said, are you going in the Navy or the Marines? Because they're right next to each other. The two, they're, they share a common fence. Yeah. We said, Marines. And he basically said, all right, you don't say another word without starting with sir and ending with sir. You don't, <laughs> you don't say a, you know, you don't say a damn word unless mm-hmm. I speak to you. You don't talk to anyone. You march your ass right outside the airport. And there was a little area there in the pickup drop off and we all got herded in there. And I mean, the harassment started immediately. So we ended up getting over to the recruit depot and I think they used, I don't know if they still call it this, but you get off, and I, I know they don't do this anymore, but you get off the bus and you run the gauntlet, right? You got all these uh, drill instructors on your left and right when you get out the front door of the bus. They did that in 95 because in the Army, the same shit that I had to go oh, through. Yeah, they, I don't know if they do now. Slapped but. you, punched you. Yeah. 
And they had us line up on these yellow footprints and they had several articles of the UCMJ on these boards and the wall. And all I remember <laughs> is they went through all of these because if they, once they brief you on them, now you're accountable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And could be prosecuted. That was the whole reason. Yeah. But article 134, which is referred to as the general article. Yep. I'll never forget how this DI explained it to us. You know, I'm scared shitless. You know, I'm standing there and he says, that's a general article. And if you just piss me off, we can prosecute you for that. And I was like, all right, good to know. And then they shaved our heads and uh, the nightmare began. But so anyway, I, you know, it was, I did that for six and a half years. I did my first tour at second Marine division at Camp Lejeune. I went to Okinawa, third Marine division, re-enlisted, went to Marine barracks, Whidbey Island, Washington as a Marine security guard closed. Now I went back to Okinawa to third Marine division. And in the interim there, I heard about this flight school deal for the army, mm -hmm. which I thought was out of reach. I had gotten my high school diploma and was going to college at night and doing that kind of stuff when I wasn't on duty and lo and behold, uh, to my surprise, I got picked up for it. I went down to Fort Lewis and did all my flight physicals and took all my flight aptitude tests and all that kind of stuff. Got my interviews I had to get. And then I finished up my second tour on the rock uh, Okinawa flew back to the separation center at Camp Pendleton and an army recruiter picked me up. I went down to San Diego to the MEP station, spent the night with some, you know, 17 year old or 18 year old kid joining the air force. We had the same hotel yeah. room and then they flew me out to uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama. And I was a warrant graduated in uh, June of 85 as a Black Hawk pilot went to the 101st. And I didn't realize the deal on being a warrant and I loved flying and mm -hmm. I loved being a warrant, but you know, bottom line is you're not going to be, you're not, it's not part of their career progression to become a commander or anything like that. It happens, but it's, it's the exception, not the rule. And so I, I just decided, Hey, I got to go to OCS. So I went to OCS and I remember you had to graduate OCS by your 10th year of service. Cause you had to be able to serve 10 years as a commissioned officer to retire as a commission guy. So I graduated OCS with nine years, 10 months and two weeks. <laughs> and, uh, I was on orders to the 82nd to fly Blackhawks. And then I had, I had already put in my, uh, assessment packet to go to the 160th special ops aviation regiment. And I hadn't even graduated yet. I did pretty well in OCS. So um, I called them and said, hey, I'm on orders the 82nd, but I'd really like to try out for you guys. And they called uh, the human resources guy. Back then it was Perscom or yep, whatever. Yep. And uh, that pissed off my assignments guy. Uh, but he, um, they let me try out. I got picked up at the 160th. So I stayed there from when I was a second lieutenant. And we were in the we were in the Persian Gulf then, uh, flying missions against the Iranians because we had reflagged those tankers to uh, Kuwaiti tankers to U.S. Mm -hmm. So I got a couple tours over there. Went to Panama for ju uh, just cause. Desert Storm happened, so I was flying attack aircraft. Hey, Panama was that eighty eight ninety? Yeah, uh, eighty nine ninety. Okay, yeah, eighty nine ninety. Yeah, I spent. Christmas of 89 and New Year's of 90. So I was uh, one of the yeah. last, way different, but I was one of the last uh, rotations through 
the Sherman. Jung- yeah, yeah. Jungle the, school. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah, I hated that. I don't I'm not a jungle fan. It's not for me. I got prickly heat like a son of a bitch. It was uh, horrible. You know, that's the good <laughs> part about being an aviator, fly over that. You yeah. say, man, that looked like it really sucks down there. Well, we I got to watch the jungle penetrator yank guys out of the jungle what you guys coming in. But Yeah, JPs, yeah. Yeah. But so seventy no, nineteen eighty, I think, was Eagle Claw. Yeah, uh, April of eighty, April twenty fourth. And if anybody listens to audio books, um, there's a few out there. Uh, Charlie Beckwith was the kind of the um, ground force commander. Yeah. Well, he was the um, Delta, founder of Delta, Delta Force, was, basically. Yeah. And there's a few books for different people that served under him. But he had this, um, you know, and I'm going to spoil the book. Pretty amazing story of what he went through. But Eagle Claw fucked his life up. That that en- ended his career. But what as now. I'm not in the level you are from what I've read. Cause it's very interesting to me. The aviation part was the, the total debacle of that. Of it was the helicopters. specifically helicopters. You know, they had flown, they were, I, I called them CH 53s, but I think they were actually MH. They were minesweeper. Let, birds. Let, let's rewind real quick. Talk about what operation Eagle claw, what was our mission for that? Just so people know that have no idea what we're okay. talking about. Sorry. Well, I know what I read, right? Because yeah. I was an E-5 in the Marines yeah. when that happened. So, I mean, you know, I wasn't on it Carter's speed dial or anything. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I was at Okinawa when I heard about it because that was, uh, you know. So, anyway, so the plan was to rescue the 52 American hostages that were being held, uh, you know, in the embassy in Tehran. So the plan was that they uh, they would forward stage on a small island called Masira off the coast of Oman. The the ground forces would, and then they would get on to the aircraft carrier. It it was the I can't was it the Nimitz I think it was the Nimitz, at the time. Can't remember. Yeah, but I think it was the aircraft carrier was the Nimitz. Those helicopters have been stored below deck. Mm-hmm. which was part of the problem as you know as a lifelong helicopter guy that you know they work better when you fly them all the time not yeah, when they you, were seahawks right is that no what they were sea stallions yeah. yeah they were mine sweeping the football team <laughs> yeah they were they were uh they were minesweeper birds is yeah. what they were for and and then al got on the nimitz and they launched you know from the nimitz uh and we're going to fly to that desert refueling site the 130s launched from masira which, by the way, eerily similar to the initial missions into Afghanistan after 9-11. Yeah. Very similar profiles, uh, which I would, I would talk to because that's sort of a comparison and contrast there. But, you um, mean how much we got our shit together? Yeah, between, I yeah. mean, we were able <laughs> no, to do right. something that no, other, no country in the world could have done yeah. af, you know, after 9-11. And I think it's important that people understand that because the investment's been worth it. But anyway, they... The helicopters went in separately, hit some really bad weather. I've flown in some of the same stuff. I got multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, crappy weather. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they had some maintenance problems en route, and they basically got to that desert refueling site with the min force they need, minimum force they needed on helicopters to complete the mission. And then they had another helicopter have a hydraulic pump that overheated and the uh, air component commander, the air mission commander, a Marine, made, uh, you know, and I'm not second-guessing his decision, but he made, a, he made a call that, hey, we can't fly that aircraft. And so they were below the minimum force of helicopters they needed to complete the mission, and they made the decision to abort. 
and all the military guys, uh, especially those that, you know, have got some combat time, understand you make those minimum force go, no go decisions before you enter into the mission, right? So you, you sort of establish, okay, I need this many helicopters. I need this many troops. I need these things to continue the mission. If I go below that, we're going to abort. And that's what happened. One helicopter decided they could fly it back to the Nimitz. So that's the one that was repositioning to get gas. And then they were going to go, that was the only one. Yeah. And they were going to go back to the ship. And that one drifted into the C-130 and caused the uh, casualties. And then it caught a fuel blivet on fire. It did. Um, did. Now, again, I'm a relative pissant and was just in a line unit, but um, I've read multiple books Mm -hmm. on this because I was intrigued what we were to what we are. Um, Right. And, um, you know... I read a book. Well, I didn't read shit. I listened to books. Um, uh, I think it was Eric Haney wrote one um, on his story with. with yeah. Um, and I think that one got some backblast. I don't know. Whatever. It did. He, co- I, you know, I, I, I've read his book. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just say he has a different perspective about the role that he played from the folks that were served with him. I think Th- that is more or less what I've gathered as a yeah. relative pissant. Um, but, you know, his portion of the uh, Eagle Claw mission was uh, pretty interesting because they thought they were getting shot at and, they, you know, uh, they didn't know what was going on and, and the helicopter was on fire. And then they're only hovering a couple feet over the ground and they're like, well, they don't know how far they're over, you know, hovering. So they jump and they're like, shit. And then they you know, basically do a face plant two feet off the ground because I guess it was just chaos with everything. Going it was. On. Yeah, there was some burn. There was one guy that was burned really bad. In fact, he didn't die, but we covered his kids, too. Oh, um, gotcha. But the there's another great book out there called The Guts to Try by I think it's Jim or James Kyle. Kyle. Yep. Yeah. And I've read it and he just passed away, I think, about that, a year ago. That book is amazing because he it's very clear that the mission could have been completed if they had the willingness to go yeah. forth, um, which is why you have your job. And yeah, w- that's where the 160th came from. Yeah. I think what that, what, you know, so that was a, you know, a clear failure on our part. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I can only imagine how bad the, the members of that mission felt when they got back. Cause I mean, it was a very obviously high profile mission failed national embarrassment, but it's important to realize what came out of that. Yeah. You know, the, um, Holloway commission, Admiral Holloway, retired Admiral stood up a commission, you know, at the behest of the president or Congress and they looked at it and what they figured out is, Hey, missions like this can't be a pickup game. Yeah. Right. You just can't bring the team together yeah. and go to the Super Bowl, <laughs> yeah. right? Especially that was the ultimate Super Bowl because of the distance they had to Yeah, travel. I mean, it was never been attempted. Yep. It was highly complex. And so they, you know, they realized they had to have standing units to do it. So the 160th was created on the rotary wing side. Of course, the helicopters were the weak link, and they immediately went into, they were only a temporary unit when they first stood up, and they went into training for and rehearsing for a follow-on mission, which never happened because they released the hostages the day Reagan uh, took office from Carter. Yeah. But they also established JSOC out of that. Mm-hmm. And then eventually SOCOM was established. And, you know, and so you look at that failure in 1980. Now flash forward to 9-11. Mm-hmm. We, in October, whatever, six weeks, rough, plus or minus after 9-11. Yeah. 
we launched the longest air assault in history. We launched off of an aircraft carrier, the Kitty Hawk, in the Persian Gulf. We're probably very near where the Nimitz was. Flew across Pakistan, multiple air refuelings, and went to Omar's house. Yeah. He wasn't home, <laughs> but they were there. Yeah. And I think they left some calling cards yeah. for him. <laughs> so the bottom line is that mission, and I, don't, I just don't think a lot of people appreciate what it went into that, Yeah, but that was exponentially more difficult than the original mission that we tried to do there in Tehran in 1980. And, and we it, did it successfully and we did. And people say, well, that, you know, that was only one. No, we did multiple missions. I was just going to say there was multiple. And again, from the outside, looking in, knowing enough about the military to, to understand, right. What's going on. Uh, some of just the, the, uh, how would you put that? If you uh, watch a, um, a fob being put together or what it, you know, you just have helicopters, not helicopters. You just have C-130s or C-5s at one after another dumping yep. off. And then you have these crews building up this small city that happens overnight. Yeah. It, it's amazing. It is what we can do now compared to what we can do then. And, and it seemed like, and, and I'm speculating and asking you cause you're a two star general. There was a lot of big dick swinging during Eagle Claw of who is in charge of what, who is taking part of what. Yeah. Uh, does that happen anymore as much, or is it a little smoother? I, I wouldn't uh, – yeah, I would definitely say it's smoother, yeah. right? But – and I think um, it's much better now. And I think there's been maturity on both sides, on the, on the conventional side and on the special ops side. You yeah. know, for instance, when we were in Afghanistan – you know, we do these raids into somebody else's battle space, and we may notify them that we're going in there, Yeah, you know, to prevent fratricide and all that. But you go in there and you break things and you kill people, and then you're like, okay, you know, back to the fob, and yeah. you leave this, like, <laughs> mess for the battle space owner. And I don't, I don't think in the early years as a soft force that we coordinated as good as we could have with those battle space owners. Yeah. That's much better now. Gotcha. Um, and I think there's a better understanding of each other's capabilities. Mm -hmm. And I also think that, um, you know, the capabilities that SOF has developed, whether it's body armor, PEC-2s, EOTECs, yeah. you know. Uh, the four-tube nods, whatever. Yeah, you know, <laughs> all of that stuff ultimately ends up, you know, not ultimately, but much of it ends up in GPF you know, units. Yeah, yeah. And so I think they realize that while there, you know, there's a big bill to be paid for these units, mm -hmm. both budgetary and, and more importantly in people and talent. Yeah. There also is uh, some return on investment. So I think there's, is it, is there still some jealousy and things like that? Absolutely. I'm sure there is. There was when I got out, but I think it's much better and there's much better appreciation. And I think the coordination is, is much better. I, way off the subject, but I had been told by somebody I, I trust, it's a high-ranking individual, that the bin Laden raid uh, between Delta and uh, SEAL Team 6 was off a flip of a coin between two army or two generals uh, on who would go if they would send Delta or SEAL Team 6. I didn't know if that was the case. Uh, obviously, both are extremely capable of completing that mission. Um, but I, I'm always... You never know what's going on under the sheets, right? We don't we don't get to see behind the curtain. That in by itself was 
pretty amazing, you know, from the outside looking in that the, the, the bin Laden raid. How much were you were you involved in that at all? I, I would assume you were at least in the know, but no, I was actually in the War College uh, up at Carlisle at the time. But I, uh, no, I don't think it was a flip of the coin. I've never heard that, yeah. and that would be inconsistent with the way we do business. Mm-hmm. So I, what they do is for high, normally what I've seen in the past for a mission like that, mm-hmm. they they give it to a unit, mm-hmm. right, and it. And they like they may they may be committed to that mission if we get intel for it for a period of time. Gotcha. Right. So, I I think that mission um, was with the seals, and and that was you know that was their mission. There was I don't have, I've never had anyone tell me there was any discussion about an army unit going in and doing that. Now I'm sure the army unit would have loved to have yeah. done that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't think there was anything like that. I mean, you know, because there's a lot of rehearsals, there's specific intel that you have to be up on. I would say from a tactical perspective, mm-hmm. that wasn't a tough mission. Yeah. It, I mean, that was like another day at the office. Now, you know, there was some special equipment involved in that and think there was some complications on the target. Again, aviation yeah. type. but. You know, I don't think it presented a huge tactical issue, certainly not like we had in Desert One or in Gecko. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you want to go over Gecko? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was in the neighborhood. I wasn't on the task force. I was uh, working out of an embassy with several other folks uh, that was in the, you know, like I said, I was in the neighborhood. But so, you know, very complicated mission, you know, launching these Blackhawks and Chinooks, air refuelable off of the deck of the uh, Nimitz to go deep in there. I mean, I, I, I can't remember how many plugs they did going in, but I, it sticks in my mind. I think it was three in and three out. Yeah. So they had to get gas three times. Which and is a fucking epic pain in the ass. It is. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I've done it. I was, you know, I flew with the Air Force as an exchange pilot from uh, 92, to right after Desert Storm to 96. So I did a lot of air-to-air refueling when I was there. I was an instructor pilot down there. Yeah. And uh, it's not that hard. I mean, but it depends on the environment. You know, yeah. if it's dark and, uh, you know, it, it, it can be challenging. So to try to rewind this a little bit for the people listening in that aren't in the military, let's say logistically, and this is breaking it down way rudimentary, but people can understand this. You're coming out to go on a, a hunt in uh, in Colorado, and you're from pick a state, Illinois. You got to figure out where you're going to go hunting. You got to get the tags. You got to get the gear. You got to drive out here, figure out what trailhead you're going in on, and you got to figure out if you get an animal, uh, you know, what processor to take it to. Logistically, really not that hard. You're what we, what what you people like you or or, or high ranking individuals are dealing with is if it's just a, a foot patrol, there's an op order, you have uh, air support, artillery, all that thing goes on in the op order. When you're talking about launching things at the scale, you're talking about shit coming off a ship in the fucking ocean, right? And then you, 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 you're, you're moving very large uh, numbers of people as well as, uh, as gear. And, and it's a logistical, I don't think people respect the fact when they actually, you pull it off, what what the fuck has gone into that because just being in the army long enough to know and understand it christ almighty it's a miracle for me to you know make it to work every day right i mean you know and you look at some of these logistical nightmares that the the planning and then the the fingers in the pie right how many different parts and pieces are involved in it 
Um, what would you say was probably the most challenging you had your hands in that you can talk about anyway, or, or maybe just kind of bring light to some of this for people? Well, you know, um, so in Desert Storm, my mission was to go after those scuds being shot into Israel. If you remember, mm-hmm. there was a big concern that if Israel came into the war, that would break up this coalition. Yeah. And by the way, people don't rem- probably a lot of people don't remember Syria was part of our coalition going against Iraq. Yeah, back you know? then. Yeah. yeah, back then. Yeah. yeah. You know, the logistics of deploying this force, uh, and we had both a ground effort to find the scuds, and then we had teams of aircraft, attack aircraft. I was the air mission commander and one of the pilots on on one of the teams that were going up deep inside of Iraq to find these scuds because they were relatively close to the Jordan border. Mm-hmm. We were completely independent of the ground campaign. Like we didn't, I didn't even know it had started until I, somebody put up a sign that I had to run with my gas mask or something. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, people don't understand the logistics behind getting the force there and everybody you know talks about the operator on the x right the yeah. guy the the guy pulling the trigger but behind them is a whole team that they couldn't do it without them intelligence logistics all those folks that are uh you know making it happen so extremely complicated what i will say is uh you know special ops are a very expeditionary force the military is an expeditionary force but you take it to another level with soft with regards to quickly deploying, right. you know, within normally hours from notification. Right. Um, that takes a lot of practice and a lot of resources. Yeah. And I, again, for me, obviously I just, um, I like to go hunting and, and while you're hunting, you're alone a lot. And when you're alone, I need something to do. And I listen to a lot of books. And so having my background, when I say background, being in the army a few years and, mm-hmm. and, and obviously having tons of friends like yourself, it's good reading material, good listening, right? Yeah. I don't read shit. Um, I'm always um, what Beckwith went through to to start Delta. Yeah, he was a casualty, you know. I mean, he didn't make flag. Yeah, yeah, and as I understand it, and again, it's just because, one, his unique personality, and two, he had pissed off so many people to get Delta going. Yes. When his kind of, um, his cloak, which was, it might have been General Meyer, whatever. Shai Meyer. Shai Meyer, he was fucked at that point. He, He didn't have anybody protect him. Yeah, he retired as an 06, but, you know, he did a tour with 22SAS, right? Yep. And that's what gave him the idea. It's in his book. Um, you know, I'm just going to list off a couple of these books. I have them on my, as depressing as this is, uh, Not I say depressing. I was wondering um, why you had that, like, prehistoric phone. I mean, uh, that thing's like, so, no, no, it's a battery pack. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I know, it's an iPhone 12, but I'm on this fucker so much I had to get a battery pack, but... The one's just called Delta Force, and it's it's Charlie Beckwith and, and Donald Good book, Knox. I've read it. Yep, and then uh, The Guts to Try is yep. another great book. Um, the one that gets kind of crapped on a little bit is the one by uh, Eric Haney, who uh, was a command sergeant major. Uh, he t- it's still an interesting book because um, it gives an idea of, of some of the training they go. Like, you don't just shit out and pop out and, hey, I'm, I'm special forces, or, hey, I'm an—I mean— you get the shit kicked out of you for a while. There's a lot of yeah, money that goes. Yeah. What would you say goes in money wise to for a oh well, let's say Delta. How much money has gone into that one person? As a rough guess. As a rough guess, and I'm you know I'm not a member of the unit or anything. I'm just guessing, but I'd say over a million bucks in and one for a, in one person. One person. Yeah, yep. yeah. And same thing with <laughs> special ops aviators. I yeah. mean, you think about what goes into that person. It's about the same. 
maybe oh, yeah. more because you're talking flight yeah. hours. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, it's expensive. Flight hours are a lot. If you just fuel alone, and oh yeah, the, I mean I don't know what a Blackhawk costs, but or an Apache, but uh, it's probably fairly significant in the yeah, several I think, millions. Yeah, uh, right? an uh, E model <laughs> Apache is probably somewhere north of fifteen to twenty million a copy. Yeah, there you go. The, uh, an MH forty seven G and the one sixtieth is probably well north of twenty million yeah. between twenty and thirty. Yeah. And we've got like, I don't know, 80 of them. Yeah, shitload. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, the dedication, and not to get way sideways on this, but one of the reasons I am so anti pro sports is the amount of money they make in comparison to what a, I'm not shitting on line units because I was in a line unit, but, but compared to someone that the willingness to go forth and do, do more, a uh, tier one guy they don't make that much money and they're, they, you know, they're spending time overseas away from their family. They're getting shot at. I mean, they're doing all kinds of shit and, and probably a million is as conservative in what's been put into that guy's training. Um, oh, yeah. And I think they get shit on me personally. I think we could do more for, for, I, I, I really appreciate what you're doing, obviously, for, you know, for the special operations community, but the amount of dedication is, and what it takes as a human to do what, like you said, uh, not just the the tier one groups, but also everyone that backs them up. It's a it's a lifelong commitment. You were in for fucking almost as long as I've been alive. Yeah, when I was at my retirement. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that. I Sorry. appreciate that. Yeah. You still look yeah. good though. You know what? I was fine a, looking gentleman. When I was private, I'd be sitting there in formation looking at these uh, like master sergeants and sergeant majors, and I'm like, man, that dude is ancient. <laughs> That's what I used to think. I mean, I was like 18 or something. Now I look at these Sergeant Major and I'm like, that dude looks like he's 12. Yeah. So that, you know, that's, that's, I'm at the other end of the journey there. But yeah, a lot of money goes into it. Now, and I share your frustration with a lot of the pro sports stuff. I will say, uh, one guy, I just got to give him a shout out, Alejandro Villanueva. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to have dinner with him in a couple of weeks, but he does my cause, my cleats for us. Yep. You know, the guy's a true patriot yeah, and just a great guy, you know, and he's been very supportive of the Special Ops Warrior Foundation. Ryan Jensen from the Tampa Bay Bucks. Yeah. He did a video for us. Uh, you know, so there's, there's now, a was lot Phil of good. Now, he was a ranger, wasn't he? He was. So he was. Uh, he was the dude standing up when everybody else was kneeling. He was Mountain kneeling. guy, too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He's the guy who was in the tunnel. Yep. Yeah. Uh, played for the Steelers for years. Yep. I mean, what a great great guy i yeah. mean he's a beast. big motherfucker yeah. oh, i stood right next to him i went and visited him at their training camp right outside of um st vincent's college outside of pittsburgh yeah i think in latrobe pennsylvania and I'm, i got a picture on my phone i'll show it to you after i mean i'm i look like a freaking like master blaster yeah i'm like i'm an elementary school or something standing next to that guy but very intelligent yeah. very articulate very humble yeah and uh he's got He's got skills in all the right areas with regard, and his priorities are straight. So yeah. I'm a big fan of his, and he's he paints his cleats up for us every two seasons now, yeah. and uh, just very supportive. Yeah, no, and I I I'm definitely um, um, the big picture. I guess for me is a little bit hard to swallow with people kneeling in front of the flag and the whole nine yards. And yeah. I, I guess um, had a conversation here yesterday with a couple people where we had talked about that and they were like, well, we agree you should have the right to kneel in front of the flag. And I'm like, well, you know why you have that right? Yeah. Because of all these people you're disrespecting by kneeling in front of the flag. 
you know, that's one of the reasons you have the right to, to, to make the choice. So for me, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have the choice. I'm just saying you shouldn't fucking do it. Well, and, and, you know, I think I would add to that is we live in a country that gives you the freedom to make that choice, but yeah. you're still accountable for that choice. choice. Yep. Right. You're, I'm accountable for everything that leaves my pie hole. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and my wife holds me accountable on a regular basis <laughs> on that. Um, and, but you know, that's the deal. I yeah. mean, we do live in a free country, but you're still accountable. Yeah. Well, I, I guess for, for me having so many friends that are, um, in the soft community, I just know what, yeah, they've sacrificed a lot. And, and again, I think they get shit on in the grand scheme of things. Um, in comparison to you, look, it's, I would, I would put, uh, you know, maybe, uh, some of my, my buddies on ODA teams, they're not going to be able to dunk a basketball or run a four, four forty, but they are as fit as any human on the planet and, and yeah. have dedicated more than anyone else. And, you know, I mean, it, it kind of sucks on, on the way they're treated sometimes. And it, it bugs me, but, I mean, we do what we can to help, obviously, getting you on the podcast. And, 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 you know, we donate money to a lot of other different wounded warrior-type programs. I just don't think America as a whole is doing enough. I think we could do a lot more. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I think we all join for different reasons, right? So I joined um, because I needed to join. It was about clay. Yeah. You know, it was about getting my shit together yeah get my shit in one sock right i mean i i knew it i listen i said you know i i do not have a bright future here you know uh and i need i need something outside force to you know get me squared away and it did but over time the why i continue to serve and why i joined this special ops warrior foundation is because there's a whole set of there's a a whole level of personal satisfaction you get out of serving a cause greater than self, right? Yeah. And it and 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 it varies with everybody, but for me, being able to, I was grateful to be able to serve mm -hmm. after I got out. You know, yeah. to continue yeah. to serve in a very meaningful way. Yeah. I tell people, I say, hey, look, if something happened to me, I'd want somebody to take care of my kids. I yeah. got three sons. I was going to say, in some ways, more meaningful than and then yeah. what you were doing to and certain people. And we're honoring people. their service, right? We're honoring their service, uh, and we're doing it in a very impactful way, which I think also helps the country. Yeah. You know, the more you have these people that are achieving their dreams and reaching their full potential, I mean, it, you know, it helps our country. Yeah. It, it does, and... You know, looking at that in the broader picture, you have someone that's lost, a, you know, a, a family member, a father, whatever, a mother uh, that has a potential possibly could go downhill pretty quickly yes. after that. Uh, you guys obviously get involved. And now rather than having a I'm not saying a burden on society, but you're helping them become yeah. betterment for society in the long run. It's huge. And I mean, that that expands for you. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's not quantifiable what the outcome ends up with when you when you help someone at that level because where they could have gone and where they go like you said 38 out of 41 or whatever yeah, it was, was. You know, I mean, exactly that's, right that, that's yeah. huge i see my and then the other two served good. yeah yeah well there you go and i mean that's the you're thing. smart for an engineer guy i know right i, I get that shit a lot um <laughs> <laughs> well the thing, i have a good memory because i did not pay attention to shit the first 20 years of my life so there's a lot of extra room so you in got there. ram yeah. Oh yeah. A lot of Ram. I got 32 gigs at least left, so I'm good. But, uh, yeah, it, it's huge. And I, you know, with, with, um, you said you retired at 41 years or 40? Well, I was a month shy of 41 years. So, you know, put that into perspective, um, obviously, uh, not to, I'm 44, right? Um, again, thanks for sharing. I know. Right. But at that, during that 40 years, 
what would you say was the worst decade in the middle there? Where was your worst five to 10 years, mm. whether it was because of an administration or something you did that thought might have been a good idea for a lateral transition or promotion? Was there anything in there where you're like, fuck, I, went a, I should have went a different direction? Well, I, I would say that the first five years or so of my service, and it was in the Marines, and it wasn't because I was in the Marines. Yeah. But, you know, when Carter was a president, the military did not get a single pay raise the whole time he was in. Yeah. And I had, I was a, you know, I, I was a sergeant and I had a platoon at Marine Barracks Whidbey and all of my troops that had kids, they were on food stamps. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I mean, if you, I think it was the magic number was you had two kids, you qualified for food stamps. Yeah. And I mean, we were, it was tough sledding. I mean, what'd you make about 160 bucks every two weeks? Yeah. I, yeah, that's generous. Actually, when I, uh, (laughs) I gave you a raise. Well, when I think when I joined my base pay and I, 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 it was like $397 a month. Gotcha. And I think, you know, I, I think my check every two weeks was like 106 bucks or something. I was putting, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't rolling in dough and then I was a young Marine. So I'd usually go out in town and thank God I had a meal and blow my check in the first week, you, you know, a free meal. Yeah. At least, yeah, at least I had a meal card for God's <laughs> sakes. I would have starved to death, you know, but yeah, I'd like buy my, buy my shaving cream and my razors and like, whoop. Yeah. Let's getting after it, man. Like six of us piled into a taxi. I was out of Courthouse Bay is where I was at. I was an amphibian assault crew member, an Amtrak or a yeah. Marine speak. And it was, a, I remember it was 18 bucks for one way to get a taxi out to, to uh, Jacksonville. And I was like, holy shit. I mean, you know. It's a quarter of your pay. That's yeah, right. Almost, yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah, it was. I drove a Jeep. Uh, I had a Jeep back then. I drove a Jeep from California where my brother was holding it yeah. back to, to uh, Camp Lejeune. I couldn't have, I mean, I just, I had a sleeping bag. Man. I pull off on the side of the road, roll my sleeping bag <laughs> out and sleep underneath my Jeep as I went across country. And it was, I was watching my pennies because I just barely had enough for the gas to make yeah. it back. Yeah. Well, I, we, we were talking about the totally different subject, but if you're going to be poor, you got to be tough. Yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, I, my 44 year old self would not want to deal with some of the gear and different stupid shit I did at my 20 to 24 year old self. Cause you can just deal with a lot more when you're younger. It just, uh, you can, you're more resilient. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm getting fragile here in my old age. <laughs> now, let's just you? say I'm North of 44. How old are you now? 60, 60. Yeah. You look good for 60 though. No homo. Well, um, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a, you know, uh, you know, my wife says I'm a total chick magnet. She yeah. doesn't really say that. Yeah. <laughs> you, and I know there's zero chance she's going to listen to this podcast. That's so good. That's good. Yeah. So I could talk smack. You, you know, st- she was Air Force, so. Oh, God. How long was she in? Uh, I think she was in from six years. So I met her after Desert Storm. I was with the 160th, I told you, going after the Scuds. And we didn't have a great relationship with our Air Force Hilo counterparts, right? There was a lot of competition there between us. And uh, General Downing was the JSOC commander back then. He passed away a few years ago. But he wanted to, you know, sort of mend that fence and heal those wounds. So we didn't – he asked for – he asked me – he got to know me a little bit because I was flying those DAPs going after uh, the SCUDs. And and uh, he said, hey, would you, what do you think about going down to the Air Force and flying as an exchange pilot down at Air Force Special Ops Command at Hurlburt? And I'll see, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. 
Germany. Yeah. Florida. <laughs> yeah, I'll take Florida. Yeah. So I, I went there after I went to the captain's career course. And so I got down there. I was, you know, the only Army guy, and it was a great tour. In fact, a lot of my friends uh, are Air Force Two and Three Stars now uh, that were my counterparts then. We've been friends for years, so it was very well. But I got a wife out of the deal. So my wife was our squadron intel officer. And then, of course, I married her with an ulterior motive of achieving dominance <laughs> over the air component, the Air Force. Which how'd that work out? Uh, not good. Yeah, no. I remain at the army remains a subordinate service to the Air Force in my own house. So, <laughs> now Her Hurlburg, that's out of Pensacola. No, nah, it's, right? it's just a little bit east of Pensacola. Okay. It's right by Fort Walton Beach. Okay, cool. It is actually, it's it's part of, in a way, I guess it's part of Eglin Air Force Base. Yeah. So it's like its own commander, but it's it's like a satellite of bases there. Gotcha. Okay. I think I flew in in my time in the military like two or three times uh, into that Eglin area. Yeah. And, then, and then we went on to Jacksonville. I think there was some training facility outside of Jacksonville. For, I can't remember. But um, the one thing I did notice, which I'd be getting to, uh, the chow halls for the Air Force are far above and beyond. Oh, yeah. Where, oh, my God. Like it was a when you're in the army and you go to eat, you're just going to eat. It was a general pleasure to go to an air force chow hall. Like I can see how you could get fat as an air force guy. Cause I enjoyed going and eating. Has that changed? Is that still the same? Uh, well, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I quit eating in mess halls a while back, yeah. but, um, I will say this, my first mission I flew with the air force, we were going out to cherry point. We were basing out of there. It's a Marine base. Um, and we're going to do deck landing calls, so yeah. go out and land on ships. I land, you know, flew from Florida out to Cherry Point, North Carolina, landed. First mission with the Air Force. Guy walks out to my, my rotors. I just pulled my rotor brake on, was slowing it down. And the guy walks up, hands me a keys to a rental car and a beer. And no I was shit. like, man, this is a lot different than what I'm used to, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think they live good. Um, and I don't think they, you know, I think part of it's the way their mission is. They got to have fixed base. The army's very, I mean, the air force is expeditionary, but different. Yeah. And so I think it's just the nature. They operate from mature bases with their fighters and the army's just, you know, they, the army just looks at it differently and they don't invest as much in the air forces as the air force does in those types of facilities. Right. The funding too, there's quite a bit more, if I'm not mistaken, there's a significant more, uh, um, as far as just straight up numbers, the army has, um, more, uh, soldiers in general than the air force or Navy or, or the Marines. Yeah. Their biggest service by yeah. far. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the Marines are, are like less than 200,000. They're not even, they're a core. I mean, they're the Marine Corps. Yeah. Three divisions. I mean, four, if you count the fourth Marine division of reserves, the army's got, you know, I Corps, three Corps. 18th Airborne Corps, and I think they just stood up either 7th or 5th Corps. Uh, they just stood that one, reactivated. So there's, you know, the Army's exponentially bigger. Yeah, which I I can't complain. I mean, it's not like the food's that bad. You do occasionally read a box that says for prison and military consumption only, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. shit like that. <laughs> but uh, overall, I think it's uh, – I get a lot of guys that that ask me, a lot of parents, you know, hey, my kid's thinking of joining the – the military, what do you think? And generally I'm just like, Hey, I, I'm not at a position to, you know, I, I joined the army. I was in for, you know, two, I, I reenlisted, you know, so I was mm -hmm. in for, uh, yeah, over six years, I guess. So I was like, you know, this is my take on it, but you know, 
if your kid likes to swim, the Navy or the Coast Guard, like, I, you know, sometimes people join as a young, impressionable person like myself. You know, it was it was Marines or the Army because that was the, the yeah. tougher thing to do. But um, I don't see any reason that somebody shouldn't join the Coast Guard or the Navy if that fits their character, if, the, if that makes yeah. sense. And uh, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, what, what advice would you give for all those listening in that, that, that uh, kids wanting to join? Well, I agree, first of all, with what you're saying. I think that, you know, depending on your background, what your interests are, you know, uh, should drive where you go. And there's different opportunities in the Air Force and Navy than there are in the Marines and the Army and the, and the Coast Guard. What I would tell you is that while you don't do it for the pay, right, I mean, you know, uh, the pay sucks, but the intangible benefits you get from serving in the military, the self-discipline, the shared sacrifice, the, the, how you grow as a person serving a cause greater than self serving this nation. I think you can't buy that. And I think you can't, you've got to experience that every, you know, we all have our different strengths and weaknesses, but vets are just different, right? They're, you know, they get up, they make their bed every day to quote Admiral McRaven, you know, yeah. make your bed every day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his wife's on our board, by the way. Oh, that's, uh, that's I served awesome. under Admiral McRaven and McChrystal, loved them both. Great, great leaders. But I think you, you learn skills in life that uh, make you a better person. And, the, and like I said, you just don't get those anywhere else. No, I, I would agree. And, and again, I wasn't in for that long. Uh, yeah, long enough, but standing in front of a guy that was in for 40 years, I hate to even bring up that I was in. But what I learned when I was in leadership, discipline, yes, got my shit together. I learned I was not the baddest man on the planet. And I was learned that there's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom, right? You can read all you want, but until you do it, you don't know yeah. what the fuck you're talking about, yeah. in, in my opinion, right? Yeah. You, you got to get out there. I learned what I could put my body through, which was a lot more than I. I thought, I remember the first time I did a 12-miler because uh, I was in the 18th Airborne Corps. Uh, I had to carry the 50 cal because I was a pissant. And um, M2, I, you were carrying an M2? Yeah. Oh, ouch. Uh, yeah, it was not good. And, and again, usually, uh, you know, somebody has an M60, uh, and there's a, a, at that time, I think the 249 uh, just came, the saw just came just out. just came out, yeah. Um, and then occasionally, just to fuck with you, they'll make you carry a, a Mondeuse just to be an asshole. Um, Hopefully just one of the receiver groups, like the lower yeah, receiver Yeah, the lower group. would be great, wouldn't it? Or yeah. a barrel. I'll carry a barrel. A barrel. I'll yeah. take a barrel, yeah. <laughs> but we, the first time you do that, you're like, you're so fucked up at the, well, unless you're, an, you know, an, excel, an athlete that's used to that. Like wow, we just did twelve miles in two hours and forty five minutes. That's that's a, it. It it tells you what you can achieve. One as a unit, and two if you put your mind to something. Yeah. And uh, you, you know, you also learn a skill set that you may not know at the time, um, but then later on comes in very handy. Leadership is a big one. Like, big one. Big one. Um, and you and then you learn bad leaders, right? You learn a lot from shitty leaders too. I mean, there's. I one hundred percent agree with that. I learn more from probably bad leaders than good ones. And especially when you're in a line unit, I'd be interested to get your take on this. And so generally how a company works is you have uh, first, second, and third platoon. You have a headquarters company. Uh, there's three or four squads per, per platoon. Um, and there's usually seven to 10 guys per squad. So roughly something like that uh, usually doesn't go below seven. Uh, so each one of those squads has a squad leader. Each one of those platoons has a platoon sergeant. And, you can definitely tell from first, second, and third platoon 
which platoon sergeant has their shit together, which squad leaders have their shit together more than others. And so as you're watching this as a very young, impressionable ding-dong, uh, green as grass, doing dumb shit constantly, as you're watching that, you are probably aspiring to be the good ones. You know, nobody's yeah. going to want to be a shithead, right? Right. And, and unfortunately, you may be in first platoon, first squad, and you really like third platoon, third squad's, uh, you know, squad leader. And, and you learn, though, from that. You learn when you even in training how, how, you know, one leader may go through and just kick ass on a, a specific field problem. You learn the whole time, and you don't even realize you're learning. You know, and I, yeah. I, I noticed that, uh, like, long-term, because I had some shitty squad leaders and some good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, from the level that you're at, coming from the very bottom to the very top, I mean, how much do you have to deal with that? How many times are you, I, I don't know how much you want to talk about, how, how often are you dealing with Peckerwood lieutenant colonels and shit? I mean, how, how often does that happen in a higher rank? Oh, it, it does. It happens all the time. You know, it, you, you hit on an important point. You know, units reflect their leadership. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can walk through a unit and, uh, and I can just by talking to the troops, I can figure out, what kind of commander they have or what kind of squad leader they have um, just by the, their attitudes and their morale. And it's not because they're ratting out their commander necessarily or their squad leader. You can just tell yeah. their priorities. What are they focused on? Are they good team players with the formations that are left or right? Um, I think starting at the bottom, although it, you know, it took me 40 freaking years to get to uh, <laughs> you know two star. And, and that was never the a goal, by the way. I never figured that. You know, I was ecstatic when I made sergeant, you know, yeah. I was like, holy crap, man, this is big time, you know. Uh, but I, I think, you know, I had a different perspective and it, and it really affected the way I dealt with leaders. So the, the answer to your question is, even in the special ops community, you know, you have commanders, you have senior NCOs that some are stronger than others. Yeah. And uh, I, I would say the baseline of competency goes up. But you still have, you know, you still have some that are probably beyond their competency level. Yeah. I dealt with some of those in the soft community and outside the soft community. And some that you see are, you know, have very, very bright futures. And I saw it as my job to make sure, and it, I didn't care if they were aviators or a logistician or a lawyer or a doctor or a personnel person or an intel type. I felt like my responsibility was to advocate and do my part to make sure those that had the most potential got promoted regardless of their branch. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's, you know, that was my obligation to the army. Yeah. So that's the way I commanded, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't saying, Hey, you know, all you other guys are bill payers. So my aviators can get promoted, right. right. The way our evaluation system worked. I, I just didn't believe that. I still don't believe that. So, yeah, you, you know, and that's part of the leadership is hard. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's not hard every minute of every day, but it's definitely a learned skill. I don't believe there are natural leaders. And I think the skill set changes as you get more senior, right? So when you're a squad leader, like you said, okay, so a squad leader, that's really direct leadership, mm-hmm. right? Um, even as a platoon sergeant, that's direct leadership or a platoon leader. I mean, you still got one layer of bureaucracy. You got to deal with those squad leaders, but you can reach out and touch and talk to everybody in your platoon. Yeah. It gets harder to do that 
when you get to the company level or the battalion level or brigade. One of the, believe me, I'm not overstepping my position where I was at in the military. I was relative pissant, but I remember one of the, one of the moments I remember best, I was running in the, we were at Fort Drum. It fucking snows constantly. Yeah, that, um, I've been up there. And yeah. uh, well, I was running in the gym, working out. I think I was an E3. Um, and my battalion commander was running in there. And I think about the third lap, he stopped me and he said, hey, you're in, you know, whatever company. And I said, yeah, yeah, yes, sir, I am. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, fuck, I said, sir, there's nothing else to do. I'm working out. I said, shit, I'm four hours in here a day. There's four feet of snow outside. I said, uh, so I, I work out in the gym and he said, Oh, he said, what, um, what are your, what are your goals? What are you, what are you thinking? And I said, I don't really have any. I said, uh, I, I joined the army cause I, I just knew I wanted to join the army. I had a shop teacher that kind of pushed me that way uh-huh. and I was a shithead much like yourself. It sounds like, and, uh, <laughs> I, I said, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, kind of my goals and whatever. And, um, he said, ah, do you want to go to this school? And I was like, yeah, I was like, he said, all right. You know, he said, well, have fun. It's nice seeing you in here. Wait, you know, keep it up. Monday morning, I had orders to go to that school, and I'm like, huh. And immediately, I thought, okay, maybe there's something to this. You get out of it what you put into that shit, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I wasn't in the barracks drinking beer, getting fucked up, eating pizza, watching TV. I, I was in happenstance. Not to say I didn't drink beer and eat pizza. I just happened to be in the gym at that time, and you could see. And he ended up being one of the better. Um, battalion commanders I'd, I'd, I'd known um and then later on in a different unit i had done something stupid with a couple e7s and we were in trouble uh basically for uh, uh how would i it was a bit of a gag we did that uh a line a somebody in a um with the background of a line unit would have found hilarious someone with the background of not a line unit which is the first guy that started screaming at us did not find it fucking funny did so, not appreciate your attempt at humor no no but what was funny as the uh battalion commander was screaming at us uh, in front of the brigade commander the brigade commander's trying not to laugh uh at this situation where the battalion commander was certainly not amused th- amused <laughs> so thank god the uh the brigade commander got the battalion commander out of the office and said hey dumb shits don't do this again and get the fuck out of my office right <laughs> that's leadership though that's yeah, 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 that's yeah. knowing we had no ill will we didn't meet we weren't kind cause problems we were just trying to make light of a situation and he said hey you do this again this is your warning you know it's funny but you can't fucking do this right get the hell out of my office and that was a learning experience. Okay. Like there's, there's a time that you get, you bust someone down. There's a time that you're like, these are good soldiers. They just did something stupid. No, no big deal. That is all leadership. And it sounds like what, for 20 years you were dealing with dumb shits like me, uh, or more. It sounds like, I mean, you, how many, what's the most people you had under your command? Oh, maybe 3000. Yeah. It's a lot of dumb shits. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you say that because I, I appreciate that brigade commander taking that position. And I would like to think that that was sort of the way I approached it when I was a, uh, I was, I commanded first of the one sixtieth, which is the biggest battalion in, uh, the one sixtieth regiment before I commanded the regiment. And I had a, a warrant officer, uh, retired now W five, uh, Carl Meyer. He's actually is very, he played a pretty prominent role in, Black Hawk Down, mm-hmm. and he was a Little Bird pilot uh, driver. Josh Cleghorn was in his same company. Oh, okay. yeah. Cryptic, yeah. yeah, he served with him, yeah. Um, anyway, he told me one time, he said, you know, the troops really like 
seeing you down here. And I thought about that, and I had a lot of respect for him. And when I was, we went through our initial training in the one sixtieth together, uh, Carl and I did. And you know, I was a second lieutenant. You know, he was a W two or W three, I think, probably a W two then. And you know, we we stayed friends. You know, we we flew together. Even though I was a Blackhawk driver, he was a Little Bird guy. But that really that conversation shaped a lot of how I did things. So I'd block off a couple hours a week and I'd just walk around the hangar. Yeah. And I, it was low threat, you know, getting to know the troops. Hey, you know, what can I do to make things better? You know, um, I had to, if you don't mind, I'll share this one vignette with you. So I always tried to spend time with the guys that I wouldn't normally see or gals. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those were what we call the back shop maintenance types, right? The engine repair people, the avionics, you know, the supply folks. Yep. I mean, I you know, I'd see pilots and crew chiefs routinely because I'd fly with them yeah. all the time. So I went into this engine shop one day, and they're in there bore scoping engines, and they're critical, man. We got to we got to have these engines, you know, checked out, repaired, and get back on the aircraft. And we were really humping in Iraq at that time, and. Um, and I got all of them together, and I said, you know, young troops, E-4s and below. And I said, hey, uh, what can I do to make your life easier? What can I do to make things better? And this one uh, E-4, Spec 4, said, hey, sir, I want to know why we don't have an incentive PT program. I score a 300, max the Army physical fitness test. But I got to go out and run these nine-minute miles with these, you know, the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And it doesn't help me on my fitness. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like we should have it. And that's not unheard of, right? And you probably had them in 10th Mountain. Oh, we, we had the uh, green, gold, whatever, the different levels. So not yeah. all, all the chuckleheads were running together. They separated them. Right. So we, we and so I, you know, I listened to this kid, walked back up to the battalion headquarters, sent out a note to all the first sergeants, company first sergeants, said, do we have one? Do you have one at the company level? <laughs> and if we don't have one, why not? Yeah. Or should we? And they all wrote back basically and said, we don't have one. Now, keep in mind, we're in combat. We've right. been in combat now for, you know, closing in on, you know, seven, eight years. They said, we just haven't, sir, we haven't thought about it. So I wrote out a policy letter. You know, you score a 290 or above on your APFT, and you can PT on your own except for, you know. Company runs. Company runs, yeah. yeah, battalion runs, stuff like that, which are more esprit de corps stuff. They're yeah. not, you know, they're, you're not going to become a super – you know, you're going to get player. shin splints running. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Get, yeah. <laughs> and so I, and I did this all in one day. So I typed up that memo, ran it by the star major. He agreed, signed it, walked right back down to that same shop about two and a half hours later and said, Hey, that suggestion you had about an incentive PT program, it's now battalion policy. Here it is. Need about shit. Yeah, he started, I mean, he crowed about it. I got, I mean, I was like eight months later, I'm hopping on a C-17, heading over to Iraq, and I just rolled out my thermorest, and, you know, because you drop an ambient and sleep yeah. until you <laughs> land at our first refueling stop. And the sergeant came up to me, and he said, hey, that spec four is still crowing about that. <laughs> he, I changed battalion policy. And yeah. I said, he did. Yeah. I said, you know, but I that left me an impression. I've always led like that, right? I've always tried to, you know, it doesn't mean I don't have to make hard calls. It doesn't mean that I don't have to hold people accountable for their actions. That's part of it. Yeah. You have to do that. And it, it doesn't matter what your personal relationship is, but you know, you, you got to give a damn. Yeah. You know, you're right. And I mean, obviously I, I 
a lot of the leaders I had while I was in, and then obviously maintaining friendship with people like yourself, I learned from that. Um, one of the things like, you know, just being here, for example, we're, we're moving the company potentially to Wyoming and we looked at Utah. I got all the department heads and I said, Hey, you're going to fly to Utah. You're going to go take a tour. I said, you know, mm-hmm. you guys have been kicking ass anyway. You got a four day weekend. Go look at Utah. You're, they went to Black Rifle Coffee and, and yeah, I've been you know, there. Yeah, went to Field. They support and, us, awesome dudes. Yeah. yeah, great, great guys. You know, they did the tour. They came back. They didn't like it, and I was like, all right, yeah, we won't, we won't move to Utah. And uh, one of them said, you know, not very many leaders would would do that. And I'm like, well, it doesn't do me any good to move you to a place you fucking hate, right? Because you know what I mean. It's got to be a group decision, and that's part of. I'm a horrible micromanager, so I, I need to have my people below me happy because I'm not, they have to be very good at their job because right. I'm not good at managing them because I, you know, I expect them to manage their yeah, own Yeah, expect them to do their part. Well, a lot of that came from different leaders and I yeah. had some leaders that weren't like that and it drove me crazy and I had other leaders that, yeah. you know, even on a patrol when you're in your op order, it, there's nothing better than a guy saying, you know, you know what do you think? Uh, you know what I mean? Like yeah. throw it out there. Because somebody, of course, maybe a private probably isn't going to throw any great advice out. But, you know, there's going to be people that may have some, you know, wisdom to to what's about to go on. Obviously, it's way different in the civilian world. But it's something, I guess what I'm saying is I always say, you know, everybody in the, you know, in the U.S. I feel should join the Army for at least two to three years. I agree. Join the military. Yeah, I agree. And I think their perspectives would be different. One of the employees we have here where I was talking about kneeling in front of the flag I said, I guarantee if you served in the military, you would not be down with having that choice or at least the repercussions of making it. And he, and he agreed, right? He said, hey, I was raised in the hood and whatever. It wasn't a, an, an angry conversation. I'm just like, no. your perspective is different when you've served your country. And Absolutely. so I think everybody everybody should. So No, I listen, I I agree. It's it's interesting how you, I, I believe, you know, and I, I the way you made that decision about where you're relocating a company now, you're looking at Wyoming and not Utah and how you empower people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a learned skill, right? Yeah. And, and you get it and you get it in small ways and, you know, in the way you watch people, how they act. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think how you take feedback is important. You know, I, I tell people when I, whenever I take command of any organization, I'd have, and I got a, picture of one of them on my phone, but I sort of have a standing commander's intent. And one of the things is I value leaders with moral courage. Mm-hmm. If you see something that you don't agree with, come talk to me. Yeah. And I tell them, I guarantee you that I will do two things. I will give it serious consideration mm-hmm. and that if I'm wrong, I'll come back to you. I'll come back to you generally anyway and yeah. give you my perspective. But you know, you got one perspective is that private being close to the problem. Yeah. Right, because you see it at a different level than I see as a battalion or brigade commander or a general officer. Yeah. They're both valid perspectives, um, and maybe that private doesn't. You know, he does certainly doesn't know what I know. Like, and that doesn't mean that I'm right, but I may have gotten guidance. There may be regulatory stuff out there. It could be resources we can't afford to do that. Yeah. But I think if you establish an environment where you're both committed to doing what's right. You know, sometimes that private's going to be right. Yeah. And in, and it's important that you empower that private, mm-hmm. and that, you know, and I don't think, I think it's a private in any organization or equivalent thereof yeah. that what, you know, what they say matters. Yeah. I do that in a foundation today. I want to hear, you know, 
hey, how can we improve our number one priority, student success? How do we do better at that? Yeah. I'm not the expert at that. These counselors are. Yeah. So you got to empower those people. And sometimes it means you may get a little tough love and hear something you don't want to hear about yourself. Yeah. But that's like you said, you learn more from bad leaders. I've learned a lot from people telling me things I don't want to hear. No, you're right. It's, this is a good conversation. Cause one of the, uh, the things like I've told people here, I'm like, look, if it's a horrible idea I have, uh, well, w- when rewind, when we purchased the company, my business partner and I, um, he brought in, uh, a few of his, uh, partners and other businesses. Mm-hmm. One of them, the first thing he asked was, was a very good question. He said, look, you're a very dominant person. You're, a, you're an alpha male are your department heads and an ability, can they argue with you? Can they tell you you're wrong? Very good question. And I said, I said, well, you, you don't know how the company runs because my department heads, I don't make the decision we do. I said, so they don't have to tell me I'm wrong because the decision's made between the two of us. I'm not making it. And he was in the military as well. He was an 88 Mike. He was a truck driver. And I yep. said, this isn't a dictatorship. I said, if now, if obviously I'm in a position, I have to make decisions. And I said, but at no time is there anything going on in their apartment where we haven't both sat down and made that decision together. So there's not going to be a time where he needs to confront me because we made the decision together. So he would be, have to be yelling at himself, right? Like good question. But if you are a dominant personality, like I do have, I know that. And so I don't ever want to overstep because of my personality and push someone into doing something that quite frankly, I shouldn't be making that decision anyway, uh, without their feedback because it's their department. You don't get that. You get a, I, in the business world, you get a lot of people making decisions and positions. They shouldn't be making that decision without getting a full, you know, circling the wagons and getting all the info. Um, and like you said, it's easy to make the decision from the outside looking in, but there's a lot of other shit going on that you may not know about. And, and it, again, I learned all that from this, my short period of time in the military, a lot of that stuff with leadership. And I think you said, you don't think that leaders are, or there's no natural leaders. Yeah. I think it's learned and I think it, it changes every level up. The skill sets change. I, I think that there are people that pop out with the capabilities of being a natural leader, but it has to be learned. There's going to be people that are more capable as leaders as others than, than, you know, some people just are always going to be quiet and, and, you know, they may have personal traits that aren't conducive to a good way to put it. Yeah. There's personal traits or how they were raised. Right. So the leadership development doesn't start when you put on the uniform. It starts when you're born. Yeah. The example your parents set. Yeah. In my case, my football coach, that's my dad was a Peckerwood. Right. So my football coach, yeah. I would have died for that guy at 15. I mean, the guy was just an unbelievable leader. I learned a lot from, you know, from, from him, right? And then, you know, as it went on in the military. And it's it's interesting, obviously, in a position, you're a person of your position to, to talk about this. What would you say, uh, you know, as far as young kids thinking about joining the military right now, it's not a great sell at this point in time in our, our lives at, at not, the world is not as the U.S. is not as patriotic as it once was. It seems like. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would seem so. I, I, I just, I wonder. I guess I here's what I go back and forth. I, it certainly appears to be the case, but I wonder how much of that is just this new CNN. Instant, well, CNN, <laughs> social media. Yeah. I mean, it's like everything gets 
you know, it gets instant coverage. The smallest event, which would have never even went anywhere now is like a major thing, you know? So, I mean, you look at the results of this last election. I mean, it was a tight election early on. More people voted and a lot of, you know, a lot of patriotic people out there, I think. And I'm not saying that you're not patriotic if you're a Democrat. I'm not saying that at all. I mean, I think that we're stronger by having a difference of opinion, right? Right. We we have sort of a balance. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a strong sense of patriotism. I just don't think you hear about it. I think a lot of the patriotic people in this country are a silent majority. Yeah. You know, so I I agree agree with you on that one. Yeah, no, I'd agree with you on that one. One of the things I'm finding out that this is really stereotyping, but what you just said, more patriotic people are kind of the break glass and in case of war type of a person. Like they don't need to go out and scream and yell and protest and picket. They have their views and they're, they're confident and steadfast in those views. And they're not going to go out and scream it to everyone in the world where on the other side of the fence, they seem to be a little bit more of maybe the screamers and the, you know, and, and, and you're right. Maybe it is over, maybe it's overlooked and, and social media is definitely a big part of that. Um, yeah. you, you know, they want you to, you see what you, even my page has been swedged down. I've got, I don't know, but I have hundred and some thousand followers. You can tell when that swedge down of what they're letting people see because you don't get as much traction. It's very trackable. Mm-hmm. They control all that shit. I know. Well, my page is a very pro pro Second Amendment pro you know pro page, and it 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 it's getting swedged down. And one of the amazing things was is after I met with Fieldcraft Survival, all former ODA guys and Delta or whatever, it started after that, and they they have a company called amcon uh, american contingent mm-hmm. that was on you know the their bank got shut down their their uh, shopify on their website all got shut down because they were painting them the, as training this militia uh against the the government or whatever it's kind of weird so the moment i kind of linked up with them my page started to, to shrink a little bit that's kind of scary that they can control what's uh you know what's being out there and i'm very pro uh, Second Amendment, I'm very pro-military, pro-veteran. Well, fuck, you know, if I'm one of the guys with a big, I'm not as big a following as a lot of people, but I have right. a pretty large following. If they can shift that, that's that's scary. Uh, so you're probably correct. Yeah, and I think, you know, once you start, you know, th- this whole thing on uh, social media was that it's the freedom of speech, Yeah. right? So whatever your views are, radical left, radical right, or somewhere in between, where most are somewhere in between, Mm -hmm. I think if it's not extremism or advocating violence or whatever, I think, uh, to me, I think it should be fair game. And I think once you start getting dominated by a particular belief or a political ideology, then that platform loses its value, or at least it's not perceived as being unbiased and that you can post and i i I think that we're it's a slippery slope that we're going down i I would agree and and i don't want to i hate talking politics on a podcast because people hear what they want to and not everybody can respond but there are things going on now you know in the in the u.s that are a little bit scary. The, the border worries me. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and the $86 million that we just spent on hotel rooms for, uh, you know, children crossing the border and what is the fix for that? And I mean, there's, it, it's, it's scary. I mean, it is definitely scary. The, the second amendment, like, 
I, we just had a shooting, you know, in Boulder. Yep. Um, they're using that greatly to, well, Boulder's obviously the most anti-gun uh, city in, in Colorado. Um, oh, is it? Yeah, I don't oh, know that. Oh, it's know. Hippieville. You can't throw a hippie without hitting a Subaru. I mean, it's all hippies <laughs> in Boulder. And, you know, they'll swing that to their own agenda. I mean, there's no way around that. And, you know, for for me, do I think everyone on the planet should have a, an assault rifle? Well, no, but that's why we have a, you got to have a background check. Right. The, the thing is, is you got a background check or not, if you want an assault rifle or a gun, you're going to find a way to get one. If you're half-ass intelligent, look at Chicago. Yeah. I, Fuck, there's more crime there than anywhere. They have the most strict gun rights. So obviously, it's not working there. Are What are your kind of thoughts on that? No, I listen, I'm a, you know, well, the the Special Ops Warrior Foundation, I just got a caveat up front. It's apolitical, right? We don't, you know, but, you know, we all have our personal views. I would I would tend to agree with you. I, I, I look at what's the problem and is the problem more mental health yeah. related and identifying those things. I mean, it's not easy to get a gun. Yeah. You know, I've got uh, several guns, and it just, I had to go through the background checks. I've got concealed carries, and I've had to go through multiple uh, checks for that, both in North Carolina and Florida. So my personal opinion is there are adequate protections in place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, we're probably dealing with a symptom more than we're dealing with the real problem itself. Yeah, and I would say you're 100% spot on with that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and and it when you say like it's not easy to get a gun, the only thing I guess I would maybe argue there is if you're dealing with people doing nefarious activity constantly, you're going to find an, uh, a way to to get a gun. Yeah. I if meant you, legally, I yes, guess. Yes, legally. I'm saying going, it's just it, you going through the process, you can't I can't go I can't go out here and buy order walk to the cart the store and buy a pistol and walk out with it. Right, right. And I agree with you 100%, and that's what worries me is it's not the people passing all of those background checks that are the issue. It's the people with some mental instability and things like that right. that are the issue. And so, you know, for uh, on, on my end, you know, looking at the moment a tragedy, a, a, a tragic thing like the shooting happened a couple of days ago, that the political agenda uses that to sway their own uh, narrative is is disturbing, uh, extremely disturbing. So, but not unexpected. N- no, definitely not, <laughs> not unexpected. Um, but I, it is it is a uh, in in this day and age. It's I I don't know what I'm going to see from one day to the to the next. It's, <laughs> it's pretty pretty alarming. You uh, obviously have went through several administrations. What would you say? You know, and I'm not saying re- Democrat or Republican, but what would you say as you were in was the military is running as smooth under what administration? Well, I guess there's several definitions. Yeah, of smooth, I think, but. you know, and again, I have to caveat this, that, you know, my perspective, you know, when I was a private in the Marine Corps, I mean, Carter was the president. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, all I knew is what I had troops when I was a sergeant, like I mentioned earlier, that were on food stamps. Right. And I thought that was complete crap, yeah. you know? I thought Reagan was a very effective, I mean, he, you know, listen, he won the Cold War, right? Yeah. He invested in the military, realized we had to do that. Uh, my personal favorite, and it, and it, part of this is just because of where I was at in my career when he served, it was George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. I, I thought he had a lot of character. I think, you know, he made some bad calls, uh, but we all do, you yeah. know, with, you know, with regard more on personnel that, you know, they then made bad calls, mm-hmm. but... 
I thought he was a man of character. And I, and even uh, President Obama said, you know, he gave him a, a hell of a transition. Like he, it was, he was a very much a gentleman. Mm-hmm. And he had the, the best, in, you know, he said, hey, you're my president now, um, and I'm going to treat you as such. Mm-hmm. And, and Obama has publicly stated that a couple of times that, uh, that Bush was, uh, was a great leader mm-hmm. and, and set him up for success. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, um, the guy taught himself how to paint when he got out of office and he t- painted this book profiles, of courage of wounded veterans. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, I did. Actually. Yeah. I mean, and so I, he's my favorite and I've seen him, I've seen him and I can't speak to the details, uh, but he made some pretty gutsy decisions. Mm-hmm at some critical times and he may, and, and I think his ethical, ethical compass is straight. Yeah. So I got a lot of time for uh, George Bush. Does he know who Clay Hupmacher is? No. Will he ever know? Probably not, <laughs> but doesn't matter. I mean, he, he, I think he set a fine example as president, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's always interesting because you get, well, for example, during his administration, I was in Washington and, uh, very liberal area working on Whidbey Island and uh, yeah. uh, building building custom crazy homes for people that I, are far left mm-hmm. and just bashing him like constantly. You know, I'd be I know. Yeah, and and for me, I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, what would you have done, right? That's like it's easy to sit back here yeah. and, and and you know sit in the back seat and and poke fun as you're driving down the road, but what would you have done? And and again, I'm not picking sides i'm just saying from the outside looking in it's always easy to walk in someone's shoes when you've never walked in their shoes you know for hop in that shoe for two steps is not the same thing of walking a lifetime in that person's shoes or two two terms i mean he was he's in there for eight years i mean he did he did so it's a long time and now uh i am slightly nervous now and i i don't mind admitting it um am i saying trump was the perfect president now he did dumb shit all the time but who we've got in the office now definitely worries me not to get into this into a play. And I'm not right, asking right, right. you to comment, but I, 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 I am, I am nervous of what's going to, going to happen. And, and I'm not saying, and I'm, I'm friends with Trump jr. And, and I liked some of the things Trump did probably should have stayed the fuck off of Twitter would have helped. Um, I, I, that's just life. There's other things he did that I think he did very well at. There's other things he did where I'm like, dude, get put the fucking cell phone down, man. Like you're your own worst enemy. And again, this is a pissant that hasn't walked in his shoes, but he did do some good things. Uh, you know, Trump, you know, it, it's weird because, um, I say it's weird. Uh, what, what the future holds, who, who knows? I, I wasn't a huge Obama fan, but there's things he did. I liked there's things yeah. he did. I hated, but there was things he did. I, I, I thought went very well. You know, when, what, what, where were you at during the Obama, uh, administration? Um, well, I was obviously serving still. So I was a, let's see, he got at, when did he, he turned over what? 16, yep, 16, 16. So I was, I had just pinned on flag. So I, I was in Korea for part of that. I was in the special ops community. Um, so I, but I was distant, you know, I mean, I, obviously I was, I was never a DC guy. I never Mm -hmm. worked in policy or worked in the Pentagon, which is actually better for my question at the level you were at anything positive or negative, or did it flow relatively smooth? I I can't, and I'm not dodging it. I just can't really say, I think, you know, were there times where I think we should have gotten approval to do critical missions? Yeah. 
quicker? Yeah. Yes. What I'd also say is that some of that is not the man it's himself. Yeah. It's it's the process that or his subordinates surrounded him that the gatekeepers, for lack of a better term, that you know, they put a lot of process or they're risk averse. So yeah, I mean I, I guess I hesitate to comment on on you know, I tell Bush I said I lo- I really love Bush because I that was my that's Clay Hupmacher's opinion as a citizen. Yeah, um, you know I always felt that I was a lot smarter than my boss till I sat in his seat. See, yeah, <laughs> well and you I, you sat in a lot of seats. Yeah, so. <laughs> and so I you know I remember I took over uh, from a very close friend of mine to this day who was my when I was one one sixty commander which was unusual in the military, I moved right down to being a regimental commander. Normally there's a gap, a year or so, but I didn't. It was just a, a fluke. But there were things that I didn't like, some of his policies when I was the 1160 commander that didn't make sense for me or didn't really help my battalion. But when I became the regimental commander, I realized why he did those things. Yeah. And almost all of those things I kept in place. Yeah. Because I just had a different perspective. And I've shared that with him. Yeah. I said, hey, there are things that I was like, you know, that's stupid. We shouldn't be doing that. I'm not going to do that when I get down there. And then I got down there, I'm like, ah, (laughs) got it. Yeah. Well, it's unique with having you obviously in front of me because you you sat in a lot of seats. So you you, when I say that, meaning, you know, you sat on the, you know, when when the music stopped, um, you, you were in chairs for 40 years from pissing yeah. chairs all the way to towards the top yeah. um and, and it's very unique because obviously you you got to see things from very different perspectives the entire way you know up to up to chain so and uh man i i don't want to uh, talk your leg off we've been on for an over an hour and a half are you good yeah i'm good man okay i'm, I'm this is good i know i got another one here coming down the road at uh, about an hour now i'm gonna prep you for luke yeah, he's dumber than a fucking box of rocks. He's one of my best <laughs> friends, and he knows nothing. Not, I would take a bullet for the guy literally tomorrow. I I trust that dude with my life, my family, and I think he had forty eight professional fights in a cage. Oh wow! You'll okay. know real quick because he's been hitting the head a lot. Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> but it's truly a guy you walk away from just genuinely good guy you're not going to get a lot of intellectual military questions coming out of his mouth. Like you bring up uh, Eagle Claw, he's going to go grab some fish hooks. Like he's fucking no clue. So going to be totally different than the podcast you had with me. All right. He's my neighbor. Um, And again, literally a guy that I would blow up a room full of people to keep that man safe. He is a good dude, but you are not going to get in-depth questions coming out of that man's mouth. It'll be interesting how it goes. Forewarned is forearmed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he he is funny uh he has uh we call him lukeisms uh again he's been hitting the head too much so in the middle of a conversation he said yeah man you gotta you gotta revolve to survive I'm like do you mean evolve luke because uh, i don't need to turn into circle turn in circles shit like that right it's been hitting the head a lot again though a super good dude but um but man i yeah we should probably hop off because i think i've missed about 90 phone calls go over one more time um as far as the the program where they can find you yeah thanks uh specialops.org we are the special ops warrior foundation so specialops.org is us so just check us out and we're we're transparent so you know make your own decisions there's a lot of great causes out there to support um but this is one that I'm certainly certainly passionate about because, like I tell people, I was a customer 
before I ran it, right? <laughs> yeah. I saw the devastation on our family. There's a lot of attention given to families right around the funeral and the memorials, but then life goes on. Yeah, This foundation stays with them over the long term. Gotcha. Well, again, everybody, um, hop on specialops.org. Please donate money. Um, I can't thank you enough for everything you've done for this country as, as well as hopping on my Pissant podcast, but true honor to have you sitting in front of me. So thank you for, I mean, thank you is not enough, but thank you for everything you've done. That's a, a lot of sacrifice. No, hey, listen, thanks, Aaron. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you. Yeah, definitely. Sounds good, man. Well, thanks again. And everybody, thanks for listening.